morning, and I think it brings to light a little bit of what that was like. This morning, in part five of our sermon series, simply entitled Passover, we're going to take a a brief look at what God did in bringing about the deliverance of his people. I'd like to do three things this morning, Three, three simple things. First of all, I'd like to point out a few things. I'd like to make some significant observations from the verses that we just read, uh, pointing out some things that the text does, and so I'd like to point out a few things. Secondly, I'd like to, to point in, that is, point inward into our own lives uh, and see a few principles that we can learn from this Passover uh, passage. And then third, I'd like to, to point forward, that is, I'd like to point forward to the one whom the Passover lamb uh, looks to and is a figure and a type of. I'd like to point forward to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, our ultimate Passover lamb. So I'd like to point out a few things. Secondly, I'd like to to point inward at our own lives. And then third, I'd like to point forward. So that's where we're heading. First of all, I'd like to point out just a few significant observations from the text that we just read. Uh, The the text of the Passover is really uh, four movements. Uh, We see the Passover unfolding in kind of four scenes, if you will. In the first scene, we see the Passover is proclaimed. That is, uh, Moses and Aaron proclaim to Pharaoh in chapter 11 that the Passover is going to happen. It's the the tenth and the final uh, plague. And Moses clearly states that death is about to to occur, that death is about to happen in the land uh, if Pharaoh refuses, as he had prior, to let God's people go. The irony is that the pharaohs of Egypt had killed hundreds, if not thousands, of Israel's sons. And now God, if there was no repentance, would bring about the death of their firstborn sons, including Pharaoh's. Including Pharaoh's firstborn son, heir to the throne, and interestingly enough, like Pharaoh, his dad, was considered a god himself. As with the prior nine plagues, uh, this last plague is an argument against the idols and the gods of Egypt, demonstrating their impotence, uh, demonstrating that they are indeed not gods at all, and the reality that there is only one god. The goddess Isis was an Egyptian goddess who supposedly was a protector of children. So we see the Passover proclaimed in the first movement. Secondly, we see the Passover presented. That is, uh, Aaron and Moses, uh, is, God presents them with how to perform the Passover. He, he, God tells them how Israel can be spared. How Israel, how, unlike the Egyptians, can be spared and how they can spare their firstborn children through the sub, substitutionary death of a Passover lamb in the place of Israel's firstborn. God presents this with them. He, he tells them how not only they're supposed to do this thing in the here and now, but in the future there is to be a commemorative Passover festival along with the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread to help Israel remember what God had done for them that night. So the Passover is proclaimed, then it's, it's presented, and then the third movement is that it's prepared for. Uh, The Passover, quite simply, is prepared for in verses 21 through 28 as Israel prepares for that tenth and final plague. We see a few additional details about how to apply the blood of the lamb specifically so that they will be passed over. 
And then we see uh, that God commands them. Once again, reiterating, this is something to be done annually. It's an annual reminder for God's people so that each generation, each subsequent generation might know what God did for them. The fourth and final movement that we saw Larry read is that the Passover is performed. The Passover is performed. In verses 29 through 36, God saves Israel's firstborn while taking many of the Egyptians, culminating in, of course, Pharaoh's demand and command that Israel leave, that they get out, as we saw in the clip. And the irony is that the man who was considered God, the one who thought himself to be a a deity in human flesh, asks the real God, the the one true God, to, to, to be a blessing to him. It was certainly admitting defeat. So we've pointed out just a few things from the passage that we've read. I'd like to do this now. I'd like to move from pointing out just a few observations from the text. And I'd like to begin to point inward. I'd like to begin for us to begin to think about applying this text. What does is, what is the Passover text mean for, for me? And what, is it, what does it mean for you? I, I see four principles. There are multiple principles and applications and truths, but I'd just like to spend a few minutes pointing out four of them. So if you're taking notes, jot these four things down, if you will. Number one, the first principle of the Passover is this. God, as the creator of life, is sovereign over it. That is because God gives life, he is sovereign over life. I think this is often a difficult and yet helpful reminder for all of us because we can deceive ourselves. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that we actually have control over when we live and when we die and that we alone have the right, that we alone have the prerogative to decide matters of life and death. And the truth that the Passover reminds us is that that is not accurate. We don't ultimately and God does. We see him exercising this right in the 10th plague. And what we see throughout Scripture, I'd like to point out just a couple to you, is that this is repeatedly affirmed. So the first example is found in 2 Samuel. You may remember the story of Hannah. She was childless. She prayed to God, and God blessed her with a son. And then she prays this magnificent prayer. And in that prayer in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, Hannah says these words about God. She says, The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. Reiterating the fact that God, as the creator of life, is sovereign over it. Uh, Just a a second quick example is from Deuteronomy. There in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, we see God himself reiterating this. He says this, See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death... And I bring to life, I have wounded and I will heal, and no one can deliver out of my hand. I think one commentator, a professor from the school that I went to, is helpful. So I'd like to read what he has to say about this. He says, God, as the giver and sustainer of life, is righteous in withdrawing life from any creature at any time, because life belongs to him. He can take it as well as give it. Furthermore, the fact that humans are all sinners and that sin results in death means that God is just in requiring the punishment for any individual sin at any time. He goes on to say, We do not have any claim on God's grace. 
God graciously did not kill all of the Egyptians. God owns all life. He just leases it to his creatures. Boy, that's one principle that we see. And how does that apply? Well, I think it makes a difference. I think it makes a difference on how we view life. It makes a difference on how we view issues of, say, abortion, for example, euthanasia, assisted suicide. You may recall a few months ago of a really tragic story of a young lady by the name of Brittany Maynard. And she was fighting uh, a terminal brain cancer, and she decided that it was her right to end her life and to, to go the route of assisted suicide rather than, than fight what would be a, a really difficult end-of-life experience with her brain cancer. It makes a difference if we view God as the sovereign. It makes a difference that we see each life as a good gift. It's a good, and it's a gracious gift from God. It's not something we deserve. It's not something that we can demand It's a good and gracious gift that God gives us. Number two, a second principle that I think we see from the Passover story is this. God's people, you and I, God's people, the church, are to regularly remember God's saving acts. That is, we are to regularly remind ourselves, collectively as a group and as individual Christians, we're to be reminded of what God has done for us. It's so significant Because we are short-sighted people, and we often forget what God has done in the past and what he's doing for us right now. This Old Testament passage here that we see, God instituting a couple different festivals that made up a whole calendar of festivals for the nation of Israel in which they were to participate, to remember what God had done for them, to remind them of God's spectacular work of bringing salvation. And so the day of Passover... They were to commemorate every year the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were to participate in every year for the sheer fact that we forget. We need to be reminded regularly, afresh. This is what God has done for us. As a side note, at the Welcome Center, I've, I've left a, a page, and it's a, a calendar. It's, it's a Jewish calendar, and it has all of the festivals, what month it is, what they did. Just if you're interested in that, it's available. Um, but... Part of the reason of God doing this was so that God's people would not forget. So how do we do that? How do we do that this side of the cross? How do we do that as the church uh, and not as Old Testament Israel? Well, I think it's significant that the New Testament gives us two ordinances. That is, two um, things that the church collectively as well as individually is to participate in to help us remember what God has done, to help us remember the salvation that God has brought about through the death and the burial and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. What are those two things? You can probably guess. The first is communion, and the second is baptism. These are the two ordinances of the church. And much like the festivals of the Old Testament, these are New Testament festivals, if you will. They are to help us remember afresh what God has done. So when we break the bread... And when we, when we drink the juice, we are to vividly, physically remind ourselves that Christ's blood was spilt for us and that his body was broken for us. By the way, this upcoming Friday, if you choose to participate in our Good Friday Seder, we will be sharing communion and doing lots of other things as well. But I encourage you to do that. Today is the last day you can sign up. So if you want to come, sign up today. But the reason I share that is that we'll be sharing 
uh, communion together, we'll be doing exactly what the Israelites were doing. They, we will be remembering what God has done for us, and it will be probably the most unique communion experience that maybe you've ever had. So I invite you to come. So we, we do it in communion, and then we do it with baptism. Uh, we'll, we're, I'm looking forward to, to having a baptism, not Easter Sunday, but the very next Sunday, uh, we're planning on having a, a baptism. And, it, and in the baptism, we remember both the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, and we commemorate what has happened in the life of the person who is baptized, that they, too, died to themselves, and they, too, were raised to new life because of their faith in Jesus. And so secondly, we are to regularly remember and refresh ourselves as to what God has done for us. Third, a third principle that I see from the Passover passage is this. Obedience follows after and flows from redemption. So get the order right. Obedience follows after and flows from God's redemptive work in our lives, and not the other way around. Again, Dr. Constable points this out. He says this, God's call to the Israelites here in this passage to live holy lives arose from what God had done for them. Consecration, he says, follows redemption. It is not a prerequisite for redemption. Similarly, God calls us to be holy in view of what he has done for us. Think about Romans 12, for instance. He does not say that we can experience redemption if we become holy first. And this is something that I think we see repeatedly throughout the scriptures, and in particular in the, in the book of Exodus. That is, God does the saving work for us, and our response to that saving work is, this, is to pursue obedience out of love for him. It's not the other way around. Obedience flows after, and it comes, and it flows from redemption. So how about you? Are you seeking to obey God and and to live a a holy, obedient life so that God will redeem you, so that he will save you? Or are you because he has saved you? The difference is all the difference in the world. It's the difference between a right gospel and a false gospel. Number four, the fourth principle that I think we see from the Passover is this. We're to teach our children about God's saving acts. Of course, we do that with baptism, and we do that with communion, but there's a strong emphasis here in the passage that the people of God are to take this event, and they are to instruct their children about what God has done. That Passover night was to be the teaching moment, a very teachable moment for parents to teach their kids about God. And I think that we, if you happen to have, parents, have kids, that I think we should do the same. We should make teachable moments for our kids as well. I think oftentimes if we're living in a, a real, a vital relationship with God, if we're pursuing him in prayer and in scripture reading, if we're active in the life of the church, if, we're, if they see us reading our Bibles or praying or reading their Bibles to them, I think naturally they're going to ask questions. And so I hope that you're living in such a way that your kids are asking you questions about what you're doing, about the Bible, about Jesus. Now, granted, sometimes they ask you good questions. And sometimes you may have to say, well, let me think about that, and I'll get back to you. Because kids ask really good questions, and they want to know. And so we should be doing that. That's one of our main jobs, in particular dads. That's one of our main jobs, but moms as well, is to teach them about God's saving Acts. So these are four principles that we've seen. 
I'd like to end our time together by not only pointing out a few things from the text that we read and not only pointing inward to learn some principles for our own lives, but this is, this is a spectacular Old Testament picture of Jesus Christ. So I'd like to, to end this sermon time by pointing forward because the, the image of the Passover and the image of the Passover lamb is one of the clearest, in my humble opinion, Old Testament pictures pointing ahead to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. When you turn to the New Testament, you see at least three explicit references tying the person and the work of Jesus to the Passover event, and specifically to the Passover lamb that was slain. The first one is found in John chapter 1. If you're familiar with the work of John the Baptist and his ministry, then you'll know that uh, a day is described when John is there baptizing and Jesus comes. And what does he proclaim? He identifies Jesus as the Messiah. And what does he say? He says, behold, the what? The Lamb, right? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, John, his forerunner, tells us and tells the people, this guy is going to be a lamb. He's going to be the lamb. He's going to be the Passover lamb whose blood is going to be shed to remove the sin of the entire world. And as if John was not explicit enough, when you move to the writings of Paul, In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, he is even more explicit because he calls Christ, and I quote, he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. And so Paul looks back at the Passover. He looks at that, the, the lambs whose, bled, whose blood was shed and whose was put on the sides of the doors and over the, over the doorpost. And he says, that's Jesus. He says, Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. He explicitly makes the tie. And then Peter also makes, I think, a rather explicit tie. Because in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, Peter also identifies Jesus as, and I quote, the lamb without blemish and without spot. Remember, the Passover lamb had to be without blemish and without spot. And Peter looks at the work and the person of Jesus, and he says, Jesus was without blemish. Jesus was without spot, spiritually speaking. And so we point forward to the work and the person of Jesus as our Passover lamb, as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by being sacrificed for us because he was without spot, because he was without blemish, because he was sinless. When you look at the Old Testament. And when you look specifically at this passage, we see some particular ways, some very specific details about the Passover lamb that I think also point us forward to Christ. And I'd like to share just five or six or seven of them with you. First of all, the Passover lamb, as I just said, was without blemish. And of course, we see throughout the scriptures that Jesus is without sin. Number two, The Passover lamb was a young lamb and was male. It was a young male. Similarly, Jesus was a young male when he died. Number three, I don't know if you caught this detail, but the Passover lamb was to be examined for a short period of time. 
there was a bit of a layover between choosing the Passover lamb and sacrificing the four uh, the Passover lamb, and it was four days. It was a four-day period. And so the lamb was to be examined. And I would submit to you that Jesus' life as the lamb of God was also examined, not for four days, but for some 33 years, and found without blemish. He too was found righteous and holy, chosen to be the lamb of God. Number four, the Passover lamb was killed literally in Hebrew. Uh, it, our translation says it was killed at, at twilight. That God said, you, you, you slaughter the Passover lamb at twilight. Now literally in Hebrew, it's, it's between evenings. It's, this Passover lamb is to be slaughtered between the evenings, which is somewhat ambiguous. And so throughout history, uh, the Jews in particular had a couple different times that they thought that this happened. One was more at, at twilight, as the sun is going down. However, the majority view said that, that, that it was more to be around 3 o'clock, mid-afternoon. And that's the majority position uh, of the Jewish people. And I find that remarkable, because when did Jesus die? Do you remember the chronology of the Lamb of God and his death? When did he die? The scripture tells us that it was around 3 o'clock the very same time that the Passover lamb was slaughtered. It's remarkable. Number five, the Passover lamb died as a substitute. It was a substitute for the firstborn sons of Israel that were taking shelter under the blood of the lamb in the house. It was a substitutionary sacrifice. And we know that the scripture is replete with references that Jesus died for our sins. That Jesus was that substitutionary sacrifice, much like the Passover lamb. Number six, none of the bones of the, of the lamb were to be broken. They were to slaughter it and eat it without harming any of the bones. And we know that scripture says that this was true of Jesus as well. And finally, the blood of the Passover lamb saved the firstborn from physical death. And we know that the scripture teaches that Jesus' blood saves those of us who take refuge in it, both from spiritual death, eternity in hell, and also from even physical death eventually. Because as we're going to be reminded of next Sunday at Easter time, that Christ's victory over the grave and over death secures those who place their faith in him of their future, literal, bodily resurrection to eternal life. And so while the blood of the Passover lamb simply saved from physical death, the blood of our great Passover lamb, Jesus, saves us from both spiritual and physical death. So here's how we're going to close with the time that we have left. I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing one final song to close our time as we sing a song about the blood of Christ, our Passover lamb, without blemish, without spot, who takes away the sin of the world. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this wonderful Old Testament picture. Thank you, Father, that you have shown us well in advance the work that your son, Jesus Christ, would do for us. He is our Passover lamb. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now as we sing, may we sing with joy in our hearts, with much thanksgiving for the blood of Jesus. And it's in his name we ask it. And God's people said, amen. Let's stand, church, and sing.